Hello everyone and welcome to a brand new year of Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby, hello. Uh, and joining me as always via the miracle of satellite technology, you don't assign him to murder cases, you just turn him loose. It's Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? Very good, yeah. Um, I'm guessing that's a tagline for something and uh, I'm going to guess it's for Sherlock Bones, the <laughs> film about a dog that solves crimes. Oh no, unfortunately it's for something a little bit more kind of well-regarded. It's a Dirty Harry. I don't know if you've heard of it. Oh. Hmm. That, that that does make sense, but it also is, I don't know, that, that film now is held in quite high regard and it seems a little too pulpy for it, I guess. Yeah, well, I guess you've got to get people in, you've got to get bums on seats, Ed. Mm. You know but I mean? even the prospect of Clint Eastwood just waving a gun in people's faces just isn't enough. Well, you can't please everyone, you know. We're back. This is our first show of the year in kind of customary shot reverse shot fashion. We're going to talk about everything that's coming up in 2016. And it's looking like it's packed to the bloody gills with uh, all kinds of greatness, isn't it, Ed? Yeah, I have a my customary list of films to talk about in this episode. And it is two full A4 sides. So it's going to be... A marathon of just listing films and saying yes, no for the next two hours or so. It's going to be like Tinder. I was going to say <laughs> a, say a film name and then it's just yes or no. I mean, where to begin it? I mean, kind of like it seems uh, unpalatable. Well, I think we should start with the most important thing, which is our customary and seldom used feature: Michael Bay watch. Mm, yeah, like we tell people every year. Um, this show is a bit of a kind of knockabout caper. We kind of try and keep things light. But there is a real scourge out there. Um, and uh, our listeners need to be aware of what he's up to. What is Michael Bay doing? Well, as usual, he's got some films that he has produced under his Platinum Dunes label, including the sequel to the remake of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, mm-hmm. the sequel to Ouija, called Ouija 2 which I guess is going to be like the little peg striking back. I'm not sure really what the appeal would be of watching it again. Yeah. The Purge 3, because apparently people haven't realised that it's really a terrible idea to let people just go nuts once a year. And as a director, he has directed a film called 13 Hours, The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi. Mm. Which is... is this an attempt to be kind of like topical? Maybe like tap into some of that trademark subtlety that he employs whilst making films? Well, uh, from what I've read about it, they say they're trying to make a fairly apolitical film and it's mainly just an action movie about the kind of soldiers who were deployed to try and help the American consulate in Benghazi after it was attacked on September 11th, 2012. But the, even the phrase Benghazi you know, to the extent that Ghazi now gets added as kind of the equivalent of gate to scandals, I think is it has become so politicised that it's kind of hard to imagine them making it as, making a genuinely apolitical film about an event that has this, is, is incredibly charged in American culture. Mm. So of all those films, plus he has just announced that he has 
uh, signed on for a fifth Transformers film. Everyone keep that in their minds whilst planning their kind of cinematic journey this year. Uh, please do avoid all those things at all costs. And if you hear of any of those films in your neighbourhood, stay in and lock your doors. Yeah, and uh, just kind of send us a tweet, let us know, and we'll try and deploy someone to help you. Yeah, I don't know who that would be. Kurt Russell? <laughs> yeah, Kurt Russell or, um, I don't know, Frank Stallone? Mm, Sylvester sure. Stallone's a little too... He's a little out of our price range now, but I think we could get Frank. We could get Frank. Um, yeah, we could probably get him by 3 o'clock this afternoon. Um, <laughs> I'm sure won't be too much of a stretch. Should we start off with the big guns, Ed, and uh, the big blockbuster films we have coming out this year? They're, they're quite popular, aren't they, these days? Yeah, let's talk about the films people will probably actually end up seeing. Yeah, I suppose uh, the first one out of the gates, uh, kind of an early start to blockbuster season, uh, is Deadpool, uh, which is uh, a Marvel film about a comic book hero who is who kind of breaks the fourth wall all the time. It's quite kind of meta um, and it looks quite fun. But the problem is, it's got Ryan Reynolds in it, who, as much as he is a good actor and likable, he is box office poison. Yeah, the the character who, I th- an actor who I think everyone who watches him says, "Hey, he's really charismatic and fun," yet cannot open a movie at all. And every time he's been given a, uh, any time he's been involved in a superhero movie, except for I guess the first Wolverine film where he previously played Deadpool, or kind of a more neutered version of Deadpool who wasn't any fun and who mm-hmm. just ended up becoming kind of a boring villain at the end. Um, yeah, he's basically been death. And as he has gone kind of full out on a charm offensive for this film, you know, doing viral videos and just generally trying to sell the humour of it and to try and convince people that this is going to be a fun film that's worthwhile. And I, I, I would like to see it work because... The Deadpool comics are, you know, very self-aware, very kind of fourth wall breaking in a way that can be a little grating, but I think also could make for an interesting break from the kind of the self-seriousness of a lot of um, of a lot of superhero movies and, you know, could potentially offer inspiration for other studios to say, hey, we can actually do something other than just make these kind of very straightforward movies. Mm. It's the other thing that's got working against it is the fact that it is what appears to be a hard R, mm. um, and it's kind of fairly violent, which will probably limit its kind of box office clout as well. Yeah, those are all things that could reduce its appeal. But I think we've seen with thing recently with things like you know American Sniper that an R an R rating is not necessarily death to a kind of a big opening weekend or a, a very kind of strong box office performance but it definitely may kind of make people think i think that the combination of r rating with comic books which is still seen as something that is kind of the purview of of children even though that hasn't really been true for a very very long time but i think comic book movies certainly are seen as something that is only really for kids um mm. That could that could possibly hurt it and cause it to fall between two stools. It's rated R for Reynolds. Um, <laughs> that should be a new certification. Hot on the heels of Deadpool, we've got uh, Batman vs Superman: Dawn of Justice, a potentious title uh, to what looks like a kind of very portentous film. We're not fans of Zack Snyder's work generally. Uh, I think Man of Steel a couple of years ago was close to being one of the worst films in this podcast's lifetime. 
but and this doesn't really look like it's going to improve things. No, I mean, it it kind of when it was first announced, I kind of felt like there was potential just because you think okay, adding Ben Affleck as Batman sounds interesting, and it seems like they could go into an interesting direction in that regards. But then, then they added Wonder Woman. You thought oh, that. Yeah, but they, they you could I guess implement her, but it also feels like it's going to be a little overstuffed. But then they introduced like Doomsday, and they're going to talk. They're talking about all these other DC characters who are going to show up, and it all starts to feel a little too much. Like they're just going to they're sacrificing what could be you know an interesting film because there are lots of good Batman versus Superman stories out there. It's a, a pairing that has been used over and over again in uh, in the comics and whatnot, but if they uh, just use it essentially as a launching pad for all of these other f- characters, then it feels as if they're putting the cart before the horse a little bit instead of doing what Marvel did, which is where you introduce all of these characters separately and then you get them together to do, you know, kind of a big adventure. It feels mm. like they're kind of missing out a few steps and just thinking, oh, you know, these characters will be appealing enough even if people aren't familiar with them. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And then shortly after that, we've got Marvel's big... Hope this year, Captain America: Civil War or uh, Avengers two point five, I think is is a fair way to kind of sum that one up because everyone seems to be in it. Yeah, you've got all of the kind of familiar faces from Captain America: uh, Winter Soldier. We've got Bucky and and Falcon and Black Widow, but you've also got uh, the introduction of Black Panther. Iron Man shows up. I'm sure they've probably two or three other people who just decide to drop in just because they had a day three and they thought, hey, I'll just suit up and go on set. It does feel like Batman versus Superman. It seems like it could be a little stuffed, but they have the advantage that they're, what, 18 films in or whatever at this point. You know, all these characters have all been introduced. Oh, yeah, Ant-Man's in it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they, they, they've introduced these characters already, so it feels like them teaming up for this particular slice of the larger avengers storyline uh building up to the infinity war uh next year i think yes um, next year well part one is next year yeah it, having them show up in this film leading up to it feels a little more natural than just kind of leaping in with both feet as batman versus superman is doing mm. also in the same month it's going to be a chock a month is uh x-men apocalypse which i mean i was very excited and I was caught completely off guard by Days of Future Past, the last X-Men film, because it was really fun. I hated X-Men First Class, um, but Brian Singer returning to the franchise seemed to write the ship and make a, a really fun film. X-Men Apocalypse, from the trailer, looks really daft. Yeah, I mean, you are getting into the kind of... the sillier aspects of the X-Men mythology when you have kind of immortal mutants who have fairly poorly defined powers but can basically do more or less anything mm. and combine that with the fact that it's moving into the 80s which is kind of giving them license for insane fashion choices mm. uh, and the introduction introduction of jubilee who is often kind of derided as one of the worst x-men although i don't think she's that bad it's just that her powers are generally not portrayed particularly well what and are jubilee's yet, powers does she uh manage to arrange large meetings of cub scouts <laughs> Uh, no, she's very good at celebrating every 25 or 50 years. Oh, I was thinking uh, of jamborees. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. That's her mm. sister. Oh. Um, 
No, like her powers basically in the if I remember correctly from the comics in the eighties, they base in the nineties, it was basically basically throwing fireworks at people or just kind of creating these kind of sparking lights which would blind people and stuff. And they it was, it essentially it's a very effective power because it can distract people and you know stop them from being able to fight for a few seconds, which can often be very useful in a fight, but. When they would try and illustrate that in the comics, it just essentially made it look like she was throwing glitter in people's faces, mm. which you know it, again is also quite distracting, but not quite as impressive. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty fabulous as far as uh, <laughs> as uh, abilities go. It has taken, like I say, a step towards the daft in the sense that uh, Oscar Isaac is playing the villain, but looks ridiculous, and uh, Olivia Munn seems to be kind of just running around in a pair of pants. Yeah, the costume they have designed for him looks dreadful. <laughs> um, mm. It's been it's been kind of widely mocked online from people who like the look of the character in the comics, which is essentially this kind of big robotic exoskeleton sort of thing. Whereas him does just look like he's just thrown up on a, thrown on a bit of face paint and a cloak, and it doesn't mm. look particularly impressive for what is meant to be kind of the ultimate villain as far as the x-men are concerned someone who pretty much just kind of splits time and who can do all of these kind of incredible things mm. yeah he looks a little underwhelming and as much and you know i have complete faith that oscar isaac can probably sell it but from what we've seen so far which is essentially just the image of him in his ridiculous guess up you don't get much of a sense of whether or not he'd be a good or interesting villain mm. yeah yeah it's a little on the nose uh his costume We've got the Warcraft movie coming out, uh, Warcraft The Beginning, which, I mean, based on the trailer and stuff, uh, I mean, I'm excited because I like Duncan Jones. He made Moon. That's a good film. Source code is fun, but not perfect. Warcraft, I find kind of troubling because it looks really shit. Yeah, it looks pretty. I mean, the the effects on it look impressive in in the way that big budget effects laden movies have kind of a base level of impressiveness. Mm-hmm. It's like you look at it and you think, well, as long as it doesn't look like a demo from Encarta 95, then, you know, that's pre- that's a pretty good result. But, like, the actual plot seems really super generic. Mm. But the, not in the... Because, like, we were talking about with um, um, Avatar a few weeks ago, like, Avatar has a very simple plot because it's trying to sell you on kind of brand new technology. It doesn't feel like Warcraft has got a really simple plot to sell you on... Um, on this kind of bold new approach to filmmaking, it has a really simple plot because you're taking an essentially plotless video game, and your which is based on kind of a lot of it's kind of derivative of a lot of high fantasy fiction and kind of grafting on a fairly generic plotline because you're dealing with a lot of kind of found parts really. Mm. Yeah, and it's kind of dispiriting because when I heard that he was doing it, I was like, well, there's. It's a pretty well-trodden route, uh, this this setting. Orcs and elves and humans and, oh, they probably have to get along at some point to uh, make sure their world survives. Um, but I thought maybe he'll bring something more to it, and I really hope that he does. Uh, but from what we've seen, it doesn't really look like it. I mean, yeah, he could. there could be something that we're not seeing in the trailer that would end up making it kind of a really interesting blockbuster. But at the moment, it looks a bit like he may have been overwhelmed somewhat by the scale of the production. Mm. As often mm. happens when directors who move from working in kind of an independent or mid-budget world 
are given kind of a huge amount of money. You can kind of see that also with something like Jurassic World and Colin Trevorrow kind of coming in and delivering something that didn't have much of an authorial voice to it because he's just dealing with huge amounts of cash and he's fairly inexperienced. I I wonder if the same thing has may end up happening with Warcraft, but because Warcraft isn't based on one of the most beloved movies of the last two decades, it mm. probably won't have the same level of success. Yeah, yeah. Is the geek dollar uh, strong enough to support Warcraft? Do you think it's going to entice people in who perhaps wouldn't, who don't play it, or aren't particularly interested in it? The way that Lord of the Rings crossed over. Uh, I've, I I don't really. I mean. You could, obviously a lot of people do play it and it's a very big popular game, but that's the sort of support that could only really last for the first weekend. If the word, if word of mouth isn't good enough, then you're not going to get it extending to the entirety of Warcraft's fan base. But then you also won't get, because it's also based on something that is, as popular as it is, is also kind of niche. It doesn't have, in the way that Lord of the Rings had, it doesn't have a cross-generational appeal that could really help it to break out to people who aren't just kind of your your um stereotypical nerds mm. who would be interested in playing it and also i think it doesn't help that i think for a lot of people people's image of warcraft is probably defined by that one south park episode <laughs> i knew you would say that i just knew you would say that <laughs> and there's no getting around it is there it's inescapable that warcraft will be forever forever tied to that yeah everyone sees the trailers and all they instantly their mind just thinks of cartman shitting in a bucket mm. <laughs> yeah, whilst the four of them spend eight weeks killing pigs in the forest <laughs> to level up. Yeah, um, actually, I would love it if that was the first hour was just some people was just the main character just grinding away until they have enough XP. Yeah, that would be pretty good, and I would watch that. We've got a big kind of sequel celebrating twenty years since the original came out. We've got a sequel to Independence Day, uh, Independence Day Two: Colon Resurgence. I think that the kind of subtitle for Independence Day 2 should probably be this again because not really I mean is it a soft reboot is it the the legacy core that we've been talking about because aliens are going to invade again and we're going to have to rebel them again and let's just hope that the aliens have updated their antivirus software in the, in the 20 years that have intervened it it definitely feels like a legacy sequel in the the plot obviously takes place after the main one you have some returning characters who have the idea, which I actually find quite interesting, of how human history has changed because of the alien invasion, because we have taken some of their technology and made it our own and things like that, which is kind of a cool approach to take to the storytelling. So obviously it takes place after, but some of the images in the trailer do obviously harken back to the original, and it's kind of hard to imagine how you can put a new spin on the alien invasion subgenre. Mm. You know, I think that uh, they they are probably playing quite heavily on nostalgia with it because it's a film that's been around for a long time. I think a lot of people grew up on it. A lot of people maybe liked it a lot when they were younger. You know, I I always enjoyed it when I was uh, when I was a kid. I haven't rewatched it in a very long time, so I'm probably I'm pretty sure it probably doesn't hold up all that well. I watched it four days ago. It was on uh, Film Four, and it was one of those occasions where it started. And my wife was like, should we watch all of this? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. And it is terrible. <laughs> it is really poor. I mean, some of the effects have not aged particularly well. No. Um, but, yeah, some of the, some of the uh, um, 
the kind of characterization and the, the, the kind of um, the bits where they're going around the world and you're kind of seeing all the other nationalities. Oh, mm. oh boy. Yeah, there's a Roland Emmerich is uh, has a somewhat broad approach to filmmaking. I think it's mm. fair to say, and um, I think that can serve him well when he's dealing in kind of very big, broad strokes, daft, populist filmmaking, uh, which this kind of very much is. But at the same time, like in Independence Day was the last Roland Emmerich film that I actually enjoyed, and even if he's returning to familiar territory it doesn't erase like the 20 years of kind of substandard shit in the meantime. So it doesn't mm. make me feel, I don't feel like, oh, just because he's going back to something that worked really well 20 years ago, he's suddenly going to be any good at making films. Yeah, yeah. We've got a third Star Trek film. Cam, uh, this is the guy who did Fast and Furious, isn't it? Is it Justin Lin, is that his name? Uh, he's yeah. come on to take over from Abrams, who's uh, doing something a bit better. Can he kind of write the ship after the kind of misstep of Star Trek 2? From the trailer and the basic synopsis that's come out, I think that they could... I mean, they have basic... They have more or less said that they're ignoring Star Trek Into Darkness, which is probably the best way to do it. And I like the idea that they're going for a relatively small story of the crew being stranded on an alien planet. And I think that's that's a better direction to go after the they kind of killed off all of the enjoyment of kind of big epic space battles and stuff. Mm. And I think that it's interesting that they've now got Simon Pegg co-writing and he obviously has a lot of geek cred and a lot of enthusiasm for the series. So I think they've, they've made some choices that seem pretty good, but the trailer itself also looks uh, a little bit bombastic and maybe a move away from maybe what people would hope to see from a Star Trek movie, which is something maybe a little more thoughtful. But uh, I've liked Justin Lin's work, what he did with the Fast and Furious films. So like the episode of Community he directed, Modern Warfare, one of the greatest episodes of television of the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he's someone who I think can deliver kinetic fun. And I think if people go in happy, uh, wanting to see kind of a kinetic fun action movie, that's that team I think could deliver that, but even if they probably won't deliver something that feels much like Star Trek. Mm, mm. I'm going to move into the unknown quantity realm of the, of the blockbuster now. And we talk about this every year when we try and identify our big flop. I would have a cheeky quid on suicide squad. Mm. Um, what are your feelings on that? I could, it, it definitely feels like one that could go, Either way, I mean, if it comes out and the reviews are great mm. and everyone's like, this is great, this is doing something really new with the superhero or the comic book adaptation, then it could be like a, a, a decent sized hit. Maybe not a kind of a huge smash, but certainly something on the level of like a Thor or a Captain America where they could set up kind of bigger success in the future. If the reviews aren't there, I think that it's too outlandish a concept or too strange a concept to really work. And I think that the trailers so far have been more off-putting than anything else, mm. which is not really the direction you really want to be going with it. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's something to be said about the last appearance of the Joker being so beloved, and this one, no matter who you get into the role, it kind of perhaps not rubbing fans up the right way. 
Yeah, I mean, Heath Ledger, everyone always says, like, Heath Ledger's casting as the Joker was criticised because everyone was so enamoured of uh, Jack Nicholson's performance, but also of, um, I think, also, like, Mark Hamill's vocal performance on the cartoon in the 90s and stuff. There were were a bunch of other Jokers that people were comparing it against. Um, So there's kind of a comparison there with the Jared Leto thing, but I kind of feel like... The Heath Ledger one for a an entire kind of generation of filmgoers is way more iconic than the Nicholson one. Mm-hmm. Like the Nicholson one, in many ways, was just Jack Nicholson, but with face paint on. He wasn't really. He didn't really kind of embody the Joker in any kind of particular serious way or or way that really suggested, "Oh, this is like a definitive version of the character." Mm. Um, and the Heath Ledger version was like a very big departure from that he was crazier and more anarchic than that earlier version was and everything that we've seen so far the Jared Leto version suggests that he isn't making that big of a bold leap Mm. Um, it's it's maybe not it's not the exact same performance but it's in the same ballpark and that may be one of the things that makes it hard for people to accept it because it's not this kind of bold, unseen version of the character. It, it just feels like a slight variation on one which everyone is super familiar with because it was in one of the most successful films the last couple of years. Mm. I think maybe the there's a few kind of famous other people in the Suicide Squad. Harley Quinn is someone that people recognise, maybe Killer Croc, but a lot of the other people are perhaps there's not much association is there for people who perhaps aren't into the comics. Yeah, it's it feels very much like a collection of characters who will mean a lot to you if you know a lot about the DC universe, but which to most people, you know, other than like, um, is it Deadshot or Killshot, who's played by Will Smith? Mm, probably. Like there, he's a character who is not very known, but the actor is. And I think most of them are characters that aren't particularly well known and often and are played by you know, character actors who can do good work, but who aren't necessarily going to really entice people in. Mm. I kind of feel like the Suicide Squad, other people are like, you know, the ones you don't know from So Solid Crew. Um, <laughs> you know, the ones you can't remember the name, or, the, or like the, the kind of the lesser known Wu-Tang Clan members that you can never remember the name of. So yeah, it could be that. One quick word on another superhero film, Channing Tatum as Gambit has got a release date of October the 7th, I believe. But as of right now, I've checked, hasn't started shooting yet. So good luck with that one. We'll kind of keep you posted as to how that works out. But I'm, I'm, not, I'm going to presume not well is the answer. In the winter, we have got Doctor Strange coming, which seems like a daft idea for a, for a, for a kind of Marvel film. And we've been constantly amazed by the shit that Marvel have pulled off, which we wouldn't think would work, like Guardians of the Galaxy and things like that. We thought were a bit of a risk and a bit odd. And this one does, but they've kind of backed it up by having a rock-solid cast. They've got Benedict Cumberbatch, Tilda Swinton, Mads Mikkelsen, and uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor, which is pretty solid. Well, all uh, you know, kind of all measures. Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of the thing that makes me wonder if it will be the one that fails, mm. just because everything seems to be so right for it, but at the same time, it it is kind of a weird idea for a film, you know, kind of a mystical sorcerer character, which isn't exactly that far away from Thor, but, you know, Thor, I think, had a little more name recognition, and I think also Benedict Cumberbatch is kind of cultishly adored, but isn't someone who I think... I think most people probably will 
uh, in terms of general audiences probably associate him more with being Khan and the aforementioned Star Trek Into Darkness. So he's not someone who has kind of very positive associations with his name. But I do like the fact that they have hired Scott Derrickson, who is behind Sinister. I always get Sinister and Insidious mixed up. Mm. Yeah, Sinister, the kind of very, very bleak horror film from some years ago. And I like the idea that they have gone to someone who is has a horror background in order to tell, to work on a story that has the potential to kind of delve into kind of eldritch horror kind of uh, territory. Although whether or not they'll really go that far because as we've seen time and time again marvel are pretty conservative when it comes to their film uh their film choices when it comes to like you know tone and milieu mm. yeah be an interesting one to see how that one pans out in getting into the kind of winter stuff now the two big films uh we'll spend a bit of time talking about um which will be kind of not going head to head but certainly kind of like holding up the, the tent poles still into the uh the winter months um, the first is uh, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, which has me wondering, uh, obviously there's a lot of kind of life in the, the Harry Potter franchise, but is it going to be quite the draw without the boy wizard and all the, the kind of familiar characters? I think it will be a pretty big success just because it is so closely tied to the world of the books and it's being written by J.K. Rowling. So I think that fans will feel like, oh, this is... I can I I feel safe with this as a continuation of the story, or you know, not so much continuation because it's a prequel. Mm. So that you also have the the sense of oh, we're going to see something we haven't seen before. We're going to see an element of the wizarding world that feels kind of fresh and new, um, and also the fact I think that it's directed by David Yates, who helmed the last five of the or four of the Harry Potter films mm-hmm. from um, Order of the Phoenix onwards, and I think he did for me i think he did really really interesting things with those films and sort of taking them into a a realm of magical realism and presenting them as kind of actually visually quite um beautiful works so i think that there is a solid team with kind of history at working on the harry potter films and the harry potter series that could you know work really well and could kind of assuage fans they may be a bit uh, reticent about seeing it initially, but I think if if the film is good, and um, I, I am I am kind of worried because it's they've cast Eddie Redmayne, and um, I'm not a big fan of him at all. But I think if it turns out to be good, then you know it could be another kind of huge franchise for a, a big extension of the the part of series. Mm, I've actually got it written down in my notes, word for word. It says, "Will Eddie Redmayne convince me and you that he's not the biggest fucking ham on the planet?" <laughs> that's the big question I'm asking and I doubt the answer is going to be yes in this the last kind of big blockbuster of the season is we've got another Star Wars film coming out because it's a year and it has to happen but I'm like curious to see uh, Rogue One uh, a Star Wars story they're calling it these little kind of self-contained spin-offs curious to see it it sounds like it could be a fun idea my biggest gripe with it is do you think it might be confusing to people who, like, a lot of people are expecting the next episode of Star Wars to come out this Christmas um, in the way that kind of Harry Potter films and, and Lord of the Rings films and kind of Hunger Games films have been released uh, kind of year on year at the same time. And, yeah, I've overheard several people talking about how they're expecting episode eight. And do you think that, that there might be some casual viewers who perhaps aren't uh, up to date with your, your Star Wars kind of uh, gossip 
might be a bit thrown by this. Uh, yeah, undoubtedly, I think that would that could happen. I think it could be a problem. I think that Disney, in their kind of uh, overwhelming marketing efforts, will probably try and do a good job of getting the word out there that this isn't a continuation. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, there there is kind of a a sense that it could be confusing to people just because it's something that has never happened before. Mm. That there has been a Star Wars movie that has nothing to do with the main continuity of the Star Wars series. Um, and it is kind of going into unprecedented territory. And also, it is, it is even though it's modelled on the Marvel approach of having a shared universe and these films coming out every year, at least the Marvel films all pretty much take place in one continuity. Mm. Whereas this one, it, you know, the, the, these events will tie, the, the events of this film will tie into, you know, the events of um, A New Hope because it's set before then. But obviously those events aren't really directly tied into the film that people are still flocking to see in the cinemas now. Mm, yeah. I'll be, I'm very curious to see as that will pan out. Um, and also, like, you know, the, there's a female lead. Will people think that that's her growing up played by a different actress? I don't know. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of yet to see. But I can never, ever, ever kind of underestimate the stupidity of the general public. So, yeah. You can't expect people to be able to tell two British women apart. No, and why should just they? just can't be done. Why should they, Ed? But, yeah, that's kind of the, the big blockbusters this year. I'd like to do a mild diversion into something I like to call sequels you never knew you wanted. We're receiving quite a few of those this year. And the kind of the most prominent of which is that 14 years after the, the, the kind of the initial impact and the kind of the kind of tremors are still resonating through the earth. It was that groundbreaking and affair. Um, we're getting uh, my big fat Greek wedding too. Yeah. Which is something that I think has been mooted for a long time, mainly after the, my big fat greek life tv spin-off failed mm-hmm. um i think uh, they've been talking about trying to get another one made and it is very strange to consider because i think we've reached a point where i think most people have forgotten how big of a hit my big fat greek wedding actually was mm-hmm. i mean certainly over here it made something like 200 million dollars which is insane for the kind of film that it was that it made that much money um and despite never being in like too many theaters and never i don't think it ever actually had spent a weekend at number one it just hung around for the better part of a year and as as big a hit as it was you have to wonder if there is that much enthusiasm for it and if people will just see the poster and think oh yeah i remember that film but not really feel like they really want to revisit characters that i don't think many people have really thought of much in the last you say 14 years yeah i certainly haven't um we're getting a jack reacher is getting a sequel um is that is this necessary um i don't think it's necessary but i'm kind of glad of it just because uh i enjoyed the first one i thought that chris mcquarrie did, did a good job with it i am slightly worried because this one is being directed by ed zvick mm. um, of the last samurai and defiance fame who I think he's a competent action director, but I don't think he has Macquarie's kind of dry sense of humour, which I think was one of the things that made Jack Reacher uh, enjoyable. And also, they don't have Werner Herzog as a villain anymore to kind of sit there and tell 
uh, insane stories about chewing off his own fingers. Mm, the perfect Vim Bender's in um, <laughs> to kind of fill that gap. We've got uh, Gary Marshall, who I can't say without doing the voice in my head from Comedy Bang Bang. He <laughs> likes to make films around kind of public holidays and events. He's did uh, Valentine's Day, New Year's Day. This year, it's Mother's Day, which yeah. is actually happening. Um, is there a kind of public holiday he won't touch, like Shrove Tuesday or like <laughs> Labor Day? Oh, no, that was done, wasn't it, a couple of years ago? Uh, yeah, yeah. this one I don't think is going to have quite so much central pie-making as the uh, as the previous version. Um, yeah, I think it's it's great that he's found a very, very specific niche for himself which is ensemble comedies based around a specific holiday, but you do really feel like he completely blew his load on the first one. Because mm. Val- Valentine's Day is like, yes, that makes perfect sense that you'd make a big film about that because it's all about love. And then New Year's Eve is like, okay, people falling in love and getting drunk, I guess. And like Mother's Day, it's like, uh, this is really kind of stretching it a little bit. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, really, really pushing it. Well, then it opens the door to Father's Day next year. Um, and, you know, he'll just keep going and going and Arbor going. Arbor Day. Yeah, Whitson, <laughs> Boxing Day for us Brits, you know, all that stuff. We're getting a sequel to Snow White and the Huntsman. Not really sure why that is. I'm, I'm kind of excited for it because I thought the first one was fun in a Lord of the Rings rip-off kind of way. But I'm mainly excited because I like the fact that they've cast Jessica Chastain and Emily Blunt in it. And I like the the trailer for it made it look uh, kind of nuts. And I like the idea that they have uh, they traded out Kristen Stewart, who I like a lot. But, you know, I think she was not particularly well suited to that kind of big epic fantasy thing and traded up for kind of two actresses who I think could really kind of, you know, vamp it up. Quite a bit in a kind of a in a, a way that could enliven this potentially very dreary story with a lot of kind of camp value, and that's kind of the thing that I think would make it really enjoyable. Mm. There's uh, another someone keeps ordering these Da Vinci Code sequels. Uh, <laughs> Inferno uh, is coming. Tom Hanks again doing something I don't care about. A bit concerned about Zoolander two. Um, mm. Very rarely a good idea when there's such a massive gap between the original and sequel. I mean, Return to Oz is the obvious uh, exception to the rule. Um, but Anchorman would probably be, might, might be a good guide as to how it normally goes down. Anchorman 2 wasn't very good. Anchorman 1, a lot of fun. Uh, almost like kind of needed a little bit of momentum to go into a sequel rather than letting it stagnate for so long and become almost a kind of parody of itself. And you also end up in that weird position where the first one is maybe kind of a cult success. You know, it it builds an audience naturally and maybe it features essentially just actors who know each other and are friends and, you know, kind of doing it almost as a favour each to each other, which I think you see in Anchorman and you also see in, in the original Zoolander. There's kind of a lot of that. And when the sequel rolls around, because it's suddenly become a phenomenon over that time, you will get people like lining out the door to show up and do cameos which just end up being distracting and the trailer for Zoolander 2 which features Justin Bieber dying um, or being assassinated as kind of a ridiculously attractive male model sort suggests that the exact same thing is going to happen here that the film is just going to be kind of weighed down with all of these 
people who are want to show up to show that they're part of the cool Zoolander club. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's like all those people had to take a bit of a risk to be in it the first time. Um, people kind of forget that that film was a massive bomb. Uh, mm. Do you know when it opened? It didn't open the week after September 11th. It opened, like, yeah, that that is when it opened. And people weren't really in the mood for it. Uh, yeah, Roger reason. Ebert. Roger Ebert famously wrote about it. This is the reason the terrorists hate us. <laughs> yeah. It may have been an overreaction to a very silly comedy, but... Yeah, possibly. You've got a bit with David Bowie. I think that's great. And uh, David Duchovny doing some of his best work. Mm, his best work since uh, Larry Sanders. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, Bridget Jones has got another sequel, but yeah, really literally couldn't give a shit. That's kind of it for the the sequel. There's a lot of remakes out this year. The one I was most surprised to hear about is The Magnificent Seven's been remade again with Antoine Fuqua at the helm, who is kind of a hack, but kind of he, he knows which end of the camera to hold, I guess. Um, but Chris Pratt, Denzel Washington, Ethan Hawke, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio, and three other people you will be destined to forget in a pub quiz one day. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I'm i kind of excited about it. Like you say, uh, Antoine Fuqua is not, maybe not kind of the most distinct uh, director out there, but he is someone who has made a bunch of films that I enjoy quite a bit. I think he can do action really well. And I think he has assembled a really fascinating cast in that, you know, obviously Denzel uh, is a reliable, is reliable. Chris Pratt can be, you know, really, really fun. And I think if they have him be kind of the goofy, charming one, as opposed to kind of his more dour turn in Jurassic World, I think he could really he could really work in this kind of um, strange uh, Western remake. And also, it's um, I'm just delighted that Vincent D'Onofrio is so prolific now after apparently disappearing for a long time to be on Law and Order. Mm, yeah, Pete's Dragon's been remade, which is I think probably a decent thing to do because Pete's Dragon is a film that I've seen a lot as a kid, but not actually very good. So you may as well remake a film that's not very good. But the weird thing is, as we said before we went on air, it's directed by David Lowry, who directed Ain't Them Body Saints, which is a very, very strange career path. Yeah, I think it's not quite as strange as Paul Thomas Anderson writing Pinocchio, but it's mm. certainly up there in kind of very odd uh, choices from kind of major corporations taking their big kind of... Uh, name remake franchise things and just saying let's give it to this person who made kind of a very talky and um, kind of Terence Malick-esque uh, uh, kind of southern gothic drama mm-hmm. um, Speaking of southern gothic and Terence Malick-esque um, there's a Dad's Army reboot uh, <laughs> coming which um, I mean it kind of looks like it might be fun in a very British way um, Has it got much international appeal Dad's Army? Uh, I would have to assume no. Yeah. Um, I mean, it just seems like a baffling idea to most other people. But yeah, I think it might might get some nostalgia value uh, over here. But yeah, an odd one. Um, Then we've got, yeah, the Ghostbusters reboot is the big one. A film I'm actually really looking forward to. Uh, Paul Feig has got a decent track record. He uh, did Bridesmaids and, and last year he did Spy, which was kind of super enjoyable. He also did like Freaks and Geeks and loads of other stuff. And it's also one of the best dressed men you'll ever see. Mm-hmm. This film has caused quite a lot of controversy because it's upset a lot of uh, fragile men who hate women uh, and who are terrified of anything female. 
and yes, yeah, just like to remind our, our listeners that these people are idiots, and I think this is going to be a really good, fun film. I have very high hopes for it. Like you say, he did Spy last year, which I felt was possibly his best film. Certainly, it was. I think it did a better job than The Heat of kind of melding action and comedy, and I feel like that augurs well for Ghostbusters, which is very much that that is meant to be a kind of an action film mixed in with kind of a, a slight action stuff. So I think he can do, now that he has kind of honed his chops on the action front, I think he can really uh, do some good work with it. And also I think that he has assembled in his kind of four women, Kristen Wiig, Melissa McCarthy, uh, Kate McKinnon and Leslie Jones. I think he's assembled four immensely funny women. Um, Kate McKinnon is, is my favourite because I think she's been the absolute best thing on SNL for years now, but they're all, you know, really funny in their own right, and I think they could all bring something to that. Uh, I like the casting of Chris Hemsworth as their secretary mm, <laughs> because again, a joke. it's a smart, it's a smart bit of casting, but also he is someone who's um, been kind of consistently immensely funny on SNL. So I feel like his comedy chops are, have not been particularly well used in cinema. So I'm excited for that, and yeah, like I say, it's just sounds like it could be. Uh, a really kind of fun, enjoyable comedy. I think that as long as it can escape the kind of the cries of annoying people online, uh, it will it will do well. I think it will do well anyway, just because, like I say, Paul Feig has developed kind of a strong tra- track record uh, of late, and also you know the Ghostbusters name is one of the most iconic out there. Mm, mm, absolutely, um, and if the men's rights activists are claiming to have lost. Star Wars: The Force Awakens, four million dollars because they think they claimed it promoted uh, SJW propaganda. Then who knows what untold damage they'll do to the box office receipts of Ghostbusters? <laughs> yeah, perhaps the most laughable story of uh, of uh, this podcast lifetime. I feel. Yeah, uh, that one. I have to admit that one gave me a lot of pleasure over the last couple of days. Just reading that, and particularly when um, I believe what was it called, Return of Kings. Yes, I believe that is the name of the website. When their response to it was to say, Forbes recognizes that we cost Star Wars money, and then linked to a story where mm-hmm. Forbes basically just said, if they did cause, if they lost the money, they lost a kind of hilariously small amount, <laughs> and pointed mm-hmm. out that their their math for working out the amount of money that they cost Star Wars was to flawed to say the least. So that that particular element of how just completely pathetic that story is was mm. immensely enjoyable to me. Huge year for Disney this year. Obviously, we've already mentioned a fair few of their films that they've got on the slate. But they've also got two animated classics from Walt Disney Studios. We've got uh, Zootopia coming up first. That's uh, kind of first out of the traps uh, earlier in the year. And then we've got Moana, uh, both of which look like they could continue Disney's uh, pretty decent streak of late. Yeah, although the trailer for Zootopia is maybe the most excruciating thing I've ever sat through in the cinema. <laughs> just because uh, I'm specifically talking about the one that is just a scene from the film involving sloths working in a DMV, which is funny the first time that you watch it, but after you've watched it like two or three times before films, the way in which they stretch out the whole of that conversation becomes incredibly grating. <laughs> um, but I, you know, hopefully it'll be pretty good um i'm i am very very excited for moana for two reasons one uh i love the fact that they cast the rock in it i think the rock has 
a kind of very expressive voice, which I think could work really, really well in an animated film. And because the music is being done by Lin-Manuel Miranda, who is the star and creator of current Broadway phenomenon Hamilton. And if he wins the Oscar for Best Original Song, which I think is probably pretty likely given that Disney kind of have that category on lock these days, Mm -hmm. uh, he'll become the youngest EGOT winner in history at the age oh, wow. of, he'll be i think he'll be about 36 when that happens so uh i'm pulling for that guy to do well because he's 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 a genius frankly but um yeah so i'm i'm very very excited for that and also i think even though disney's past attempts to kind of make stories about characters who are kind of uh, non non white have been a mixed bag um mm-hmm. poker contest i'm mainly thinking of i think it is still important when they do tell stories about people of color i think it says something about the way in which you know films don't have to be just about white protagonists well i mean big hero six uh last year we had asian leads mm-hmm. and uh, i mean we've had lilo and stitch i mean let's not forget that yeah um, mulan. And mulan was great mulan um princess and the frog was fun yep. really fun so you know uh, esmeralda in uh hunchback of Notre Dame, she was a bit swarthy <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like it has proved no barrier to the Force Awakens success mm. um, to have a you know the principal cast being uh, a white woman, a black dude, and a Latino guy. It's really not actually proved much of a of a barrier at all to anything, has it? No, and I think that having more films that demonstrate that means that hopefully will cause other people to realize that there are more opportunities that you can create opportunities for you know people of color to headline films which Mm. is something that should be obvious because you know not just white people go and watch movies so it makes sense to cast people who aren't white in films but um that has kind of been the predominant orthodoxy in hollywood for a very long time so anything that can kind of very slowly chip away at that uh, Mm. is is all to the good as far as I'm concerned. Mm. It's an embarrassing thing to have to even talk about this, isn't it? In 2015, in 2016. Yeah. yeah. The the kind of the racial situation on our planet is, is, is just kind of embarrassing all around. Yeah. And uh, yeah, get over it. Come on with Disney. You're leading the way. They've got two big live action, uh, apart from Pete, Pete's Dragon, live action versions of films. They've got the sequel to Alice in Wonderland and the Jungle Book one, which kind of looks intriguing. Yeah, that one looks like it could be a lot of fun, and uh, I think it's it's kind of strange that it's being directed by John Favreau, considering that he just two years ago made a film entirely about how sick he was of making big budget movies for studios. But mm-hmm. um, I do feel like that could be quite fun, and he has assembled uh, a really good voice cast, uh, like people like uh, Idris Elba and Scarlett Johansson, um, essentially just all of the Marvel players, but on their off days, get them in recording. And uh, Bill. Bill Murray as uh, uh, Baloo is great casting. Yeah, that is fantastic casting. Um, I'm less excited, by which I mean not at all excited for the Alice in Wonderland sequel, other than um, if it allows uh, Mia Vajikovska to keep making interesting choices by living off of her Alice in Wonderland paychecks, then I'm all for it. Um, mm-hmm. And I do think it's interesting that James Bobin has been has been given the job after his work on the Muppets and Flight of the Concords. Uh, it's a very interesting and strange career path he has taken. I'm not sure he'll be able to do that much with 
kind of this lumbering uh, franchise, but it's still um, I'm still uh, excited when people I like get work. So last at the uh, on the slate for Disney is uh, Finding Dory, which I'm not sure how I feel about. I mean, I love Finding Nemo. I'm not really sure I need that sequel to it, but Pixar you know, always do good work. But again, another sequel. Yeah, the tra- the trailer for it that played before The Good Dinosaur didn't fill me with much enthusiasm, but then again, Pixar generally don't tend to do particularly good trailers. So it, it, I, I'm reserving judgment. I do like the fact that the story is about Dory getting some of her memories back and trying to find her family. I think that's kind of a nice twist on it, and I think that there's potential there for lots of kind of adventure and heart and everything. So... Uh, I'm not uh, prepared to just completely write it off, but at the same time, uh, like you say, Disney haven't had the best uh, kind of results when they've... uh, Sorry, uh, Pixar haven't had the best results when they've dipped into their back catalogue to do sequels and prequels and such. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like, Monsters University is, is a decent guide for that, isn't it? Because it was fine, but like you said several times before, it just didn't need to exist. mm yeah, this feels like it maybe has more reason to exist because you're kind of delving into the backstory of uh, of a character, but at the same time, you think, I don't really feel like I needed to know where Dory came from. I don't mm. really need to know what the trauma is that caused her to lose her memories. But, you know, I think it could it could be good. Yeah, yeah, it could well be good. I'd like to now turn our attention uh, to this year's oddities, there are quite a few out there, um, and uh, some we don't want to slip through the net. Uh, I mentioned to Ed beforehand, uh, we started recording that there's a film out this year called Nine Lives, uh, in which Kevin Spacey is a kind of like a body swap comedy where he kind of finds himself in the body of the, the family cat. And I think we need to kind of bring your attention to these things, um, just so you don't miss them. There's an Angry Birds movie. Of course there is, Ed. What's that going to be about? What's that going to be like? Uh, I... I have to imagine it's just going to be some very generic uh, action adventure where the pig, the the bird, like there's one bird who's on its own and then its egg gets kidnapped and then it goes on a quest and it meets all the other birds along the way and then they all have to unite like Voltron at the end. And mm. just, yeah, I, I can't imagine it's going to be that good. Maybe one of them will die and it'll be heartbreaking. Um, mm. But probably not because then, you know, they're not going to be able to bring them all back for the sequel. That one... I think that one street speaks to the uh, the vagaries of pop culture in that that was a film that was probably commissioned several years ago at the height of Angry Birds fame. And now because it's an animated film, it takes a really long time. And now it's come mm. out when I feel like enthusiasm has dipped somewhat. Yeah, I'd like it to be um, McSweeney's, the, uh, the literary journal. Um, did a great bit about uh, Angry Birds where they framed the story, but like they were... Um, letters from the front in the Civil War (laughs) (laughs) and the birds were writing home to their wives about saying the dastardly uh, kind of the plots of the bigs and it was it was a masterpiece I'd watch that for two hours that would be really fantastic hand hand the keys to Ken Burns and have him stage it as a fake documentary yeah or at least the person who was behind the pillow forts uh, episodes (laughs) of Community um, there's an all animated R-rated comedy coming out from the sick minds of uh, Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg called Sausage Party, uh, which sounds suitably filthy. 
Uh, we've got Paul Rudd, Kristen Wiig, James Franco, Craig Robinson, Jonah Hill. They're basically the cast of of, of This Is the End. Um, you know, is is that something that people will watch? Uh, I think it probably will do pretty well just because of the people involved. Maybe not a huge hit because, like, you know, comic book adaptations, I feel like animation is seen primarily as something for kids, even though there's a whole um, kind of swathe of of uh, animated films out there, not for kids, not least of which Anomalisa, uh, which has just recently come out, that mm. say that you can make animation that is for people for, uh, other than kids. But I think that uh, it'll be interesting to see how that one does because I think a lot of the trends over the last couple of years has been people trying experiments to see if they can try and bring certain things back, like the Hateful Eight um, with Tarantino forcing all of these cinemas to you know kind of refit to be able to display 70mm film makes people think that maybe there'll be a revival of the 70mm format and you know Kodak's had a a big year after many years in decline so i think that this seems like it could possibly be the kind of a canary in the coal mine to try and work out if there is a market for kind of hard r animated comedies and if it's mm. a success then we could see quite a lot of these in a few years which would be kind of an interesting development as people in hollywood are always looking for kind of new trends to jump on and if you don't have a superhero franchise you have to try and find some other way of making money Mm, mm. Uh, speaking of uh, someone who can't find other ways of making money and is uh, flogging the same old dead horse Ricky Gervais is doing a David Brent movie uh, called Life on the Road because I think he's realised that he's a one trick pony and whilst the trick is pretty good he's he's kind of trapped in it now yeah he's also hasn't he got that one called like Foreign Correspondence which is about war correspondence out in the field which is going to be a Netflix movie Yes, yes, that's coming out this year, yeah. Which doesn't look like it's going to veer too far from his established model. Yeah, yeah. Um, where Bain broke, you know, don't try anything different. Um, <laughs> the There's a film coming out about Eddie the Eagle, which is stars uh, Taron Egerton and uh, Hugh Jackman, is directed by Dexter Fletcher. And that sounds weird that there'd be a film about Eddie the Eagle Edwards, one of the uh, notoriously worst Olympians that Britain has ever produced, but early word from festivals and things is it's actually really good. Yeah, I saw the trailer for it uh, before I think Joy the other day, and it was oh, a few weeks ago now, and it was strange because obviously you're telling this very uh, this very British story, and then like Hugh Jackman and Christopher Walken are showing up in it, and there's kind of a disconnect between those two. But I thought Taron Egerton's performance looked pretty good, and it is kind of an interesting story and I do like Dexter Fletcher as a director I think he's done some interesting work um, over the last couple of years so uh, what I would really like it to be is if it could be a somewhat sly parody of inspirational sports dramas as opposed to just a kind of a straightforward one because there's a real danger that it could end up being that film about was it Paul Potts like that they had James Corden playing him it mm-hmm. could it could just end up being like that if you just try and make a straightforward inspirational drama about a kind of a traditional British kind of figure. And I feel like there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunity there for, for, for comedy to be drawn from it, as evidenced by the fact that I think at some point in the distant past Steve Coogan was meant to be in the lead in that film when it was in a different uh, iteration. 
Right, okay. Yeah, yeah, that kind of makes sense. But they've kind of struck on the, the, the kind of, well, the iron's hot with uh, Taron Egerton from Kingsman, I guess. Mm. And the fact that he's being cast in everything at the moment. Another oddity uh, we've got uh, this year is uh, Timur Bekmambatov, the uh, Russian director who directed Nightwatch. Uh, and crossed over to do Wanted and uh, I think Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, which was dreadful. But he's remade Ben Hur, which can't be that small an undertaking. But he kept that quiet. Yeah, that strikes me as like every year we try and predict what is going to be the film that's going to be a big flop. And I feel like that one seems like a leading contender. That in Gods of Egypt. Mm. I don't know why people have decided that what we need this year is more swords and sandals epics. But. They are going kind of full bore for them. Bore probably being the operative word because Timur Bekmambatov's tricks kind of worked with Nightwatch, wore a bit thin with Daywatch and Mm. have been just kind of completely unbearable since Wanted onwards. So I can't imagine that him applying it to the story of Ben-Hur is going to be all that interesting. His film Springwatch was on BBC the other day, but it was just Bill Oddie and some badges. It was really confusing. The weirdest film I'm going to award, well, I'm going to award the title of weirdest film uh, in 2016 to a film called Colossal, which is directed by a guy called Nacho Bigalondo, who directed a really cool film called Time Crimes. I don't know if anyone saw that, but I certainly did. It's a great little low-budget science fiction film that... Um, a bit like Primer, kind of makes uh, full use of its uh, kind of batshit crazy premise. Um, it's a thriller. It's really good. It's a kind of Spanish movie. But he's done a film with Anne Hathaway. Do you know about this film, Ed? No. Oh, well, he's done a film with Anne Hathaway. Um, and I'll read you a paragraph synopsis of it. A woman returning home after her New York City job and her engagement both fall through realises that she is somehow psychically connected to a rampaging monster laying waste to Tokyo. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's got to be the greatest film of all time, surely. I mean, it's it's the absolute best elevator pitch I've ever heard. Mm. I can just imagine getting getting into a room with an executive and just kind of hurling it at them and then seeing if they... I think someone must have greened at that, greened at that because they were just so startled by it. Yeah. They didn't know how yeah. to react. Yeah, I, I kind of think that like, Anne Hathaway won her Oscar and she was like, I really, really don't want to just leap straight into the first superhero movie or big budget action movie. I want to do something, you know, worthwhile. And then that came on a jet, uh, come across a desk and she was like, fuck yes, I'll do that. Because <laughs> why wouldn't you? I mean, it is, it does sound kind of amazing and strange. And I love, I love it when someone who is kind of an established actor who could have their pick of roles... Um, just kind of goes, yeah, this, I'm just going to do the absolute most batshit thing that comes my way. And uh, they get given something that is legitimately insane. Mm, mm, absolutely. We're now going to move into the the part of the show where we talk about the films that we're super, super excited about and the ones that uh, we really want to see this year and we kind of hope everyone else does too. But we, as we said at the top of the show, there's so much coming out this year that it just kind of, which is kind of blitz through some of the stuff that we don't have time to talk about, which is crazy given how uh, packed the year is. We've got um, Ben Wheatley has got two films out this year. He's got High Rise, uh, the J.G. Ballard adaptation, and Free Fire, which is uh, produced by Martin Scorsese. We've got Hail Caesar, the Coen Brothers' new film. 
um, Whiskey Tango, Foxtrot, the new Tina Fey, Martin Freeman comedy. Um, we've got James Gray has got a new film out, Lost City of Zed. Richard Linklater has got a new film out called Everyone Wants Some. Uh, I'm excited. I'm sure uh, Ed's excited as well as uh, Mike Mills, who made Beginners a few years ago. He's got a new film out called 20th Century Women, uh, which stars Greta Gerwig, Elle Fanning and Annette Benning. That's got to be worth... Yeah, that's a great cast, isn't it? Yeah, that is just... On the cast list alone, I think it deserves all the Oscars. Yeah, um, Midnight Special. Jeff Nichols has got two two films out: Midnight Special and a film called Loving as well, both coming out in the same uh, year. Um, we've got um, kind of perhaps less um, prestigious, but The Lonely Island have got a film out, and I have to say, Hot Rod is pretty funny. Yeah, I I like the premise of this one as well. Con, it's called Connor for Real. And I like the idea of them going kind of for a full boy band musical. Mm. Uh, I think yeah, yeah. They've been away from the comedy music scene for a little too long, having their own separate and successful careers. So I'm mm. excited to see them getting back to what they do so very well. Um, we've got James Franco's uh, adaptation of The Disaster Artist, Greg, Greg Sestero's memoir of uh, his kind of uh, insane adventures uh, making The Room, which looks like it could be really fun. Uh, Whit Stillman's got a new film out called Love and Friendship. Um, could you believe that Warren Beatty might release a film this year, Ed? Yeah, the film that he's been editing for like three or four years at this point about Howard mm. Hughes. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure there's a level of irony there that perhaps he really <laughs> needs to tap into. Um, Kenneth Lonergan's got a new film out uh, called Manchester by the Sea with Casey Affleck and Coach Taylor and Michelle Williams. You know, that's super exciting, but again, we don't have time to talk about that too much. He's got a TV um, series coming out as well. He's doing an adaptation of um, some classic work of literature. But I, but I I joked when I read that, because I think it's meant to be like a six-part miniseries, and I joked that it was going to end up being 90 minutes long, and it'd air at like two in the morning, mm, based yeah, on his it, past form. It probably will. Martin Scorsese might have a film out. It could be this year's Foxcatcher. Yeah, in the, in the sense that it might be released in 2018. Um, that's Liam Neeson, Andrew Garfield, and Adam Driver, Jesuit priests in 17th century Japan. You know, that's pretty solid as a, as a lineup goes. We've also got a very curious film called Sing, which is a, an animated film from Garth Jennings, who directed uh, Son of Rambo and The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And the cast, it's an animated musical about uh, reality TV shows like X-Factor and American Idol and stuff. But the cast is as follows. Matthew McConaughey, Reese Witherspoon, Scarlett Johansson, John C. Riley, Seth MacFarlane, Jay Farrow, Leslie Jones, Nick Kroll, Peter Serafino. It's a Nick Offerman. That is, that, that is a cast that I would love to see doing anything. <laughs> so I'm glad that someone has managed to get them in a, whole, in a single film, even though uh, ideally I would prefer to see them in like some, I don't know, some Sam Shepard play or something. Yeah, that would be quite nice, but unlikely. Assassin's Creed might be the best, the, the first good comic, uh, video game adaptation. It seems unlikely, but then you've got Justin Kurzel at the helm and Marion Cotillard and Jeremy Irons and a, a really good cast. Uh, Fassbender is the titular assassin. I mean, could it happen, Ed? Could it? Um, I think it has the absolute best chance of any film ever being good based on a video game which is to say it has a 5% chance. Hmm. It has yeah, a better chance yeah. than Warcraft. But oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm st- I, it's so hard for me to imagine someone making a good 
movie out of Assassin's Creed just because those games, as as fun as they are to play, the appeal of them is being able to run places. It's not about telling a story. Mm. And doing parkour. Yeah. Oh yeah, I think yeah. it's they are they probably missed the train when it comes to parkour. If it had come out five years ago, it would be the biggest film ever. Yeah, it'd better come out before the episode of the American Office. <laughs> okay, so right, we're gonna get into the films that we've shortlisted as being our most anticipated of the year. Um, what have you got first on your list, Ed? I have uh, Billy Lynn's Long Half Time Walk, which is the new film from Ang Lee. And if I was to, if you were to ask me which film I think will end up being given a new name before it is released, hmm. I think it would be that one. It's a war comedy, famously shot at 120 frames per second because uh, Ang Lee apparently thinks that uh, Peter Jackson is a pussy. And <laughs> uh, yeah, I am. I'm excited for it because I like Ang Lee a lot. I like the idea of him, you know, kind of veering into um, this kind of weird war satire. And I do like the fact that he is apparently determined to make the least commercial film ever by making a war satire shot at an incredibly high frame rate that would probably leave people feeling sick and with a name that it would be impossible for anyone to remember. Mm. Mm. Who's, uh, Who's in the cast for that? The cast is uh, Garrett Hedlund, Christian Stewart, Vin Diesel, Steve Martin, uh, Chris Tucker, kind of the main one, Tim Blake Nelson. So it's got a, a lot of good, interesting people in there, written by Simon Beaufoy, who uh, wrote the Slumdog uh, Millionaire, I believe. And, and the Four Monty, yeah. So, yeah, it's got a lot of good people in it. And, you know, I mean, we did a whole episode on Ang Lee, so obviously we're in the tank for him. Um, and I'm, I think any film that he does is uh, kind of uh, is is kind of a reason to get excited for me, even when the premise or the approach to the material sounds kind of bizarre. Mm, absolutely, um, my kind of perhaps my most anticipated film this year um, is a film called A Monster Calls, which is um, an adaptation of a young adult novel by Patrick Ness, who is. Uh, in my opinion, for my money, the best young adult writer going. Um, and it's uh, pretty grown up. It uh, deals with uh, kind of illness and death and uh, about a kid who's kind of bullied and his mum is dying and he's kind of super lonely. And a giant monster appears in his garden in the shape of a kind of a, a talking tree. Um, and it kind of helps him through, but is also a very threatening presence. And uh, I mean, that sounds like a kind of very interesting pitch off the bat, I guess, but then to say that it's directed by Juan Antonio Bayona, who did The Orphanage, um, and it stars Liam Neeson, Felicity Jones, Sigourney Weaver, and Tony Kebble, uh, Toby Kebble, sorry. Um, that is got some really good pedigree, and I've read the book, and it is an absolutely fantastic book, and a real kind of tearjerker. Um, it's actually um, it a story that started to be written by someone else, and uh, she was dying of cancer, and she handed story over to Patrick Ness and he finished it for her after she died and it's a remarkable book and I really hope it's going to be a good film yeah I mean that sounds fantastic everything from the, the premise to the that amazing cast and obviously uh, Bayona directed The Orphanage which is one of the best kind of horror films of, of the last decade or so so I think he but is also a very, very kind of sad and melancholy film. And I think if he can bring that magical realist touch to something that's a bit more accessible, you could end up with something really special. 
Mm, and I really hope that it might open the door for adaptations of some other of Patrick Ness's books because he's written some really cool stuff. He did a, a trilogy called Chaos Walking, which is um, set in a world where there are no women and it's a mystery as to why there isn't. Um, but the other thing is that all men's thoughts are out loud and you can't escape them, um, which is a really cool idea. And the, the, the books are great, but it's perhaps two crackers to kind of make um, with no heat behind it. But he's doing the new Doctor Who TV show, the spin-off called Class. He's behind that. Um, and I think if this is successful, maybe there's a chance that um, some of those might see uh, the light of day, which would be cool. Uh, what else from next? <coughs> Sorry. What's next on your list, Ed? Uh, next on my list is the fifth film in the Bourne franchise, um, because uh, uh, the film that made me kind of pause earlier because I saw that it was called Bourne Five, and I was like, "Wait, five? And then I because I'd completely forgotten that they made that terrible one with Jeremy Renner. Um, oh yeah, I'd forgotten <laughs> that until you just said it. Yeah, so but it's like it's the fifth one, although really probably the fourth one because I doubt they'll probably pay that much attention to the Bourne legacy, um, but. Uh, I'm I'm really excited for it. I think the original Bourne trilogy is kind of a fantastic <coughs> collection of action movies. I thought that Matt Damon was was great in the lead, and I think that his returning to the franchise, along with Paul Greengrass, all gives good things. And I like what they've said so far about trying to update it for kind of the uh, Edward Snowden age. And I think that that uh, you know could produce a kind of really exciting, frenetic action movie with some sort of uh, relevance much as the first three were uh, and yeah I think that there is a lot of potential there to deliver a really great blockbuster mm. It's always a good sign when um, the director and the star come back because mm. you get the feeling that they neither would have probably done it without the other Yeah I think that uh, Greengrass was the main sticking point for a long time because they they basically said that they wanted to get Matt Damon back for for incredibly long periods of time because obviously he is the face of the franchise and I think the relative lack of success of the Bourne legacy attested to that because people weren't as willing to kind of take a chance on uh, Jeremy Renner as the, the face of the franchise and I think that he basically said he wouldn't do it unless they brought back Paul Greengrass and after and he's obviously had kind of a big critical success a few years ago with Captain Phillips so I think he is uh, operating kind of at the height of his powers now. And I think that he has such a distinctive vision that, you know, he could really do something special with the support and the money that comes with being allowed to return to the kind of the huge franchise that you helped turn into a phenomenon. Mm, mm. Um, another good pick um, for this year is a film that's been doing the festival circuit for a while now, but doesn't get released until I think quite late on this year is Green Room, which is uh, the new film by uh, Jeremy Saulnier, who um, directed a film called Blue Ruin. Um, and I think this proves he can only direct films that is a colour than a noun. Um, uh, he uh, directed Blue Ruin, which we really loved. It was last year, wasn't it? It was on our kind of list. It was right at the top. Yeah. Kind of really kind of tense and ugly kind of adventure. And this sounds um, no less gritty. It's about um, a kind of a punk gig. Um and the band is playing and the gig is invaded by neo-Nazis. And it's a very kind of claustrophobic kind of chamber piece in a sense. Um, but the neo-Nazis include Patrick Stewart, which is always exciting. And uh, festival word and early buzz has been hugely positive. Yeah, finally a role that suits his hairstyle. 
Um, mm. But yeah, that the the reports of that coming out of uh, Cannes were, you know, hugely hugely positive. People were saying that it was a just kind of a, a rollicking good time and a really great example of what you can do with a great cast, big ideas, and a, a still fairly minuscule budget because he's still working in a very kind of in low budget independent film world but uh, yeah like he's assembled an amazing cast there and he has a a premise that gets me very excited for some kind of uh musical mayhem mm-hmm. what have you got next uh next up on mine is a film called keanu which is a comedy directed by peter atencio and starring key and peel it is essentially the key and peel movie uh, peter atencio was their kind of director on their tv show for the entirety of its run and it's essentially about two guys who come into possession of a cat which belongs to uh, i believe someone very famous and uh, their efforts to try and get the cat back to them and it sounds like it could be you know a, a great fun action comedy um i'm hoping that the two of them make the transition to uh, film as we can kind of as well as they conquered television uh, particularly when you consider also um uh, Jordan Peele has a horror film in development about uh, the terrors of basically the terrors of being black in America, which uh, I don't think is coming out this year, but also sounds very fascinating. And I'm just really excited that those guys are apparently intent on conquering the world. Mm, absolutely. Do you think they've got the chops to cross over? Um, or do you think it might be a case of, you know, the, the whole thing about the sum of their parts? Uh, I think they have potential to do at least one really good film together. I'm not sure how well they would be able to kind of keep working in the more demanding area of film where you have to kind of hustle to get a film made every so often, as opposed to being on TV where they were always going to produce like 10, 10 or so episodes a year. So I feel like this they they could hopefully do this really well and then as... as uh, much as I would like to see them make like a thousand films, because uh, I think those guys are just incredibly funny and smart guys. Um, I, I would be happy if they just made one really, really good, funny film together and then just went their own separate ways. Mm, absolutely. Um, I'm really excited this year for a film called Cobra and the Two Strings, um, which is the new film from Studio Leica, who, if you don't know, are the probably uh, America's premier. Um, animation studio at the minute with Pixar kind of treading water, Disney um, doing some great stuff. But in terms of kind of unique, distinctive work, uh, Studio Leica is definitely where it's at. They did um, Paranorman, Box Trolls, Coraline, um, kind of you know, very eccentric style, um, always really kind of uh, fun adventures, but with real heart and pathos, especially someone like Paranorman, which uh, dealt with some kind of pretty decent sized issues for what's essentially a children's adventure about uh, kind of ghosts and zombies um, and yeah the new film about a uh, kind of a young boy uh, trying to find who lives in kind of feudal Japan trying to find his uh, father's lost suit of magic samurai armour um, kind of sounds and looks delightful got uh, Matthew McConaughey, Charlie's Theron uh, Rooney Mara, Ray Fiennes um, providing the voices surely looks like another another bit of solid gold yeah, the thing I like about Leica is that, um, like, obviously, Coraline was kind of a pretty big hit. Um, 
Paranorman didn't do as well, Box Patrol didn't do as well, but their kind of their films not doing as well don't seem to have blunted their ambition. Like the trailer for uh, for for Kobu looks incredible. You know, it looks visually stunning. It looks like it has tremendous ambition and it looks determined to tell its own distinctive story and doesn't really seem to uh, seem in any way generic, which is um, kind of impressive considering that so many of the kind of the, the kid, the animated films that come out in recent years all kind of start to blend together and become a bit indistinct. Mm. Yeah. It's nice to see someone with a unique style and a unique stamp who, um, are kind of just ploughing their own furrow, I guess. Um, and I'm always excited um, to see what they've got. And yeah, this one's no different. Um, what's your next one? Uh, my next one is one we briefly mentioned earlier, but it is Hail Caesar. Mm. The latest effort from the Coen brothers, a comedy set in the kind of 50s Hollywood starring Josh Brolin as Eddie Mannix, who was a, a real-life figure who was a fixer for MGM for many years, uh, although in this one he works for a fictional studio, I believe the same studio from Barton Fink. So it's taking place very much within the Cohen's uh, already established, the, the Cohen's cinematic universe, the CCU as they call it. Um, and I like what I've seen so far of the trailer. It looks, from the trailer, it looks like uh, immense fun. It has a lot of the their kind of rep company, people like... Um, like George Clooney, who they've worked with many times before, Josh Brolin, who I think they've worked with. Is this the third time they've worked with him after True Grit uh, and No Country? Yep, yeah, it would be. Fourth, technically, including that short film where he goes to a cinema and asks whether or not films have any livestock in them, mm. um, which is very funny. I recommend people check that out. Um, uh, yeah, and, and you know it has uh, Scott, Scott Johansson, uh, Channing Tatum, who has... Uh, one of the most gifable moments in uh, any recent trailer, which is when he is stopped mid dance number holding a man upside down and just kind of slowly tilts towards camera, uh, <laughs> which is very funny. And I like the after they did, you know, Inside Lewin Davis, which is a very kind of very sad and wintry film for them to come back with something that is so huge, you know, mm. something that looks has a big cast, is very brash and bombastic, and it's kind of a big comedy. And even though their recent comedy efforts haven't worked as well for me. Like I remember having very um, high expectations for Burn After Reading based on the trailer, which the film didn't live up to, although that, that film was still pretty fun. Um, I am I am looking forward to seeing what he what what uh, what they do with this this great assemblage of talent that they've got. And also, it's mm-hmm. nice to see that Jonah Hill is continuing to have a surprisingly blessed career working with some of the best directors in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You wouldn't think that um, when you saw Superbad mm-hmm. um, that he would go on to, you know, as I saw someone tweet earlier, have uh, more Oscar nominations than Vivian Lee. <laughs> but there you have it. I'm going to pick as my next uh, film, um, a film called The Witch, which some of you may have seen because it's done some festivals, it's done a lot of horror film festivals. Um, it's a film by a guy called Robert Eggers, and he has made what looks like an incredibly terrifying film set in the kind of... Um, I'm really bad at history, Ed, so I'm going to say the Puritan times, um, and people wear bonnets, um, and it's set in, like, uh, America or something, 
and there are witches and it looks really spooky. Yeah, I've the, the trailer for it played before um, Crimson Peak, I think, when I saw that in the cinema. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I'm not sure I could handle the whole film. The trailer alone was just absolutely terrifying. <laughs> um, but that also kind of makes me want to see it, even if I will probably be watching it through kind of through my own hands. Yeah. Uh, because um, it does look, it looks absolutely hor- terrifying. Yeah, it looks like the kind of horror film I like, which is one that's you know thick with atmosphere rather than uh, kind of cats jumping out from behind boxes or people cutting each other's head off. Because um, anyone can do that. It takes real skill to, to kind of uh, build that kind of palpable sense of dread for 90 minutes. And I personally will be enjoying that dread, even if you're not, Ed. <laughs> um, what's your last pick? Uh, my last pick, uh, in stark contrast to The Witch, <laughs> is uh, the new Spielberg <coughs> film, The BFG. Based, Ooh. of course, on the Roald Dahl book, uh, which uh, was a very, was a favourite of mine as a kid, and written the screenplay written by Melissa Matheson, who co-wrote E.T. and who uh, slightly died uh, fairly recently. Um, the trailer for it came out a few weeks ago, and it has a lot of the kind of the Spielbergian atmosphere. It has has a sense of wonder and a sense of fun. But the thing that really uh, appeals to me about it other than the fact that you know i love the book is the casting of mark rylance as the bfg uh, who is an actor i like a great deal from his work on wolfhall and uh being particularly great in uh in bridge of spies where he previously worked with spielberg and i like the casting of him as the kind of friendly slightly doddery uh giant of the title mm. Uh, are we looking for Steven Spielberg to kind of uh, reset his uh, board state, having um, dropped the ball slightly with Tintin when it comes to kind of family adventure films? Uh, I think it'll be nice to see him getting back to doing live action animation. Because even though I did like Tintin, I felt that there was something missing when you take him, you take put him into complete animation. I think a lot of the fun of his work is seeing him orchestrate amazing things in live action. I think mm. when everything's kind of elastic and cartoony, you lose a certain sense of the fun. Uh, and I think that the BFG offers a lot of opportunities for him to really kind of do kind of really great, interesting and, and fun things. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. It's uh, definitely uh, an interesting one. I can't wait to see it. The last film we're going to pick um, is a very curious sounding film um, but I'm sure you'll agree um, I think everyone want to see this it's by uh, Damien Giselle who directed Whiplash um, which was one of our favourite films from last year um, it's called La La Land and it's an original musical so a musical not based on uh, an existing Broadway show or using existing songs um, starring Ryan Gosling as a jazz pianist and Emma Stone as a kind of like young starlet and J.K. Simmons, um, shut the fuck up and take my money. <laughs> yeah, the images that have been released so far have just shown uh, Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone dancing on a rooftop, and that's all I want from the film. Mm. I mean, speak about kind of likable leads, um, talent behind the camera, and a good idea. Yeah, and I do like also any situation in which a director you know, has has a kind of very modest success with Whiplash. Obviously, it, it won a bunch of Oscars and was, uh, but it was only kind of a modest commercial success and then uses that to parlay into doing something 
kind of a bit grander and mm. this feels like a big step up in terms of scope and in terms of genre to move from a very intense low uh, kind of low scale character study to doing a big original musical which is not something that people in hollywood do very often mm. and i can't think think of a single example of a young director who's done a kind of had a big success with a modestly budgeted film who hasn't fallen face first trying to do something wildly ambitious uh, <laughs> on a much larger budget so good luck with that uh damien just oh i really do hope this comes off um but yeah i mean 2016 is looking like a pretty fucking awesome year yeah i mean i, th- I think out, out doing this podcast and having to kind of think about what films are coming out and to look back on films a bit more seriously over the last couple of years i think is, has revealed to me something which uh, i always thought was just kind of uh, kind of fluff when people would say it, which is that every year generally is pretty great for cinema. I think mm-hmm. you have to dig a little deeper to find it some years, but there's usually kind of a great amount of stuff. And I think this year is testament to that. There's a, a lot of variety of stuff. It, it could all be terrible. It could all just be a year of nothing but shit. But I think that there is a kind of a variety and a depth of stuff that's coming out that suggests that we could be seeing some really interesting stuff. Mm, absolutely. Um, and we um, are going to kind of launch into a lot of those films as the year goes on. And please do not hold us to any of our predictions of any of these films being good or bad. Um, and just watch at the end of the year when we do our top 10 list, none of these films featuring and all the films that we feature being films we haven't even mentioned. Yeah, as is our, as is our way. Or for all of them to have been delayed by three years. Mm-hmm. Is Foxcatcher out yet? <laughs> Uh, no, but there is a very good documentary on Netflix, a 30 for 30, called The Prince of Pennsylvania, which is all about the Foxcatcher story. So while we still wait for Foxcatcher to emerge, uh, mm. you can sate it with that 50-minute doc. Mm, absolutely. Um, we will be back next week with our first proper episode of the year. Um, we'll be talking about piracy, um, which should be quite exciting, um, and the Oscar nominations, which will be out between now and then. Um, so until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>